uh, I've really appreciated the uh, the focus on Advent over the years, and um, this year again, it's been particularly um, kind of renewing. Um, I love this phrase, making room for the King, and for the different themes that we have for this. Uh, you know, the the faith element that. In order to make room for the king, we encourage our hearts in faith and we are encouraging each other in faith. To, to, that's the very ground of our being, isn't it? Upon whom do we rely? Where's the source of our life and our being and our future? Which leads us into that great theme of hope where um, in making room for the king, we, we make room for the sense of the future that he has planned. That, that, uh, that, that, that great... That great promise of uh, of of the forever, you know that, uh, and we have to confront the fact that in our daily lives, so much of the present material world just crowds in and fills us up, and isn't it a good thing to have a time of the year where we just confront that and deal with that in a new way and say, oh, I need to make more room for the forget for the forever King, you know, in my temporary momentary life, and uh, then we pass on to peace in the midst of a world that is so so troubled and so many troubled hearts and lives and homes around us it's so important that we uh, that we put faith again and build our faith again in the power of Christ to bring the world to peace and peace to the world and uh, to individuals and, and and to live with that confidence and uh, and um, then joy you know, the thing is, I was reflecting on joy. Oh, Chris has good value, isn't she? Of course, he's great value. And isn't it wonderful, you know, that um, so often people speak, and I hope it, in a way it happens today again, that they say, they, they do something wonderful in their preaching, and it's such an inspiration, and the thing you take away is something they didn't say. <laughs> you know, you kind of, it just starts something in you, doesn't it? And one of the things about joy is that, that when joy again starts to spring up in us, who we really are in Christ is being renewed. You know, the, we are being renewed in that joy of our salvation. Restore unto me the joy of our salvation. I remember as a young child, I was seven or eight years of age, and I was uh, uh, at my mother's instigation at a children's um, Rally, a woman who used to, uh, to to share the gospel with children, and and it had been building up in me for a few weeks, and I think my parents knew it, my insightful mother knew it, and anyway, this lady came and she shared the gospel, and I just knew I had to respond to the message, um, which was um, you know a, a bit of a fire and brimstone um, version, um, and when you're seven or eight, um, you know, I mean, dad is enough fire and brimstone for you. You don't need the whole of heaven against you, you know. So I thought I'd better make my peace with God. Maybe it'll change my relationship with my father. Um, but anyway, I, it was more sincere than that. But all I know is that I, uh, that when I, you know, that the lady said to me afterwards, because she knew whose child I was at the time, she said, well, your father will deal with you later. And I thought, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. But what happened was he called me into the bedroom as, well, once again, not what I really wanted because it usually meant things, but we knelt down at the bed and we prayed the sinner's prayer and the joy that well sprung up in me as a seven-year-old child to know that I was forgiven and that I was loved and that I was received. 
I've never forgotten it. The joy of our salvation when it comes to us in a personal way. So today we're talking about probably the kind of, you know, if you have a quest, the Holy Grail for me is to answer the question, what is love? And, um, and that's what my task today. Um, and uh, I'm right out of my depth with this. Um, this is um, too deep for me. So we're just going to have to put on our water wings and jump in. And, uh, try, uh, and God will help us float. So there's a couple of things here. You know, we like to start with some kind of definitions of words that are used in the scripture. Um, and I was surprised to define, to discover that in the Old Testament, the most common word for love, ahav, it just means something very basic, you know, to have affection for someone, uncomplicated. It's just what probably we would give us, if I'd asked you to give me a definition of love, you'd just give me something like this, wouldn't you? You know, to have a genuine affection for somebody. And, um, uh, and so of all the many hundreds of examples of, of the word that is translated into the English in love, as love, um, a majority of them are this word. Just as simple as that, hey? That's encouraging to know. You don't have to be a theologian to understand. Love to have affection. Common understanding of uh, love. I, I must say that I've been interested in a word that's used very rarely, actually, in the Old Testament uh, as a noun, this chesed. You've probably heard of it before, which means um, uh, to be kind to someone who is lower in social rank and status. It can be like a parent to a child, you know, just recognising the smallness of the child and, and, uh, and, uh, and the smallness of their misbehaving <laughs> and, and finding a way of, of getting on their level. I find it's always a wonderful thing when you're dealing with children, you know, to sit on the floor or to get down to their level where they can see, look in your eyes. They're not looking up at you. They're looking at you in, at, at an equal level. And it's a very powerful mo metaphor of acceptance, isn't it, when we're not looking up but when we're looking face to face. And uh, so they're treating them as an equal, giving them favour, mercy, covenant faithfulness and commonly translated, even though it's used uncommonly, as loving kindness and covenant love. Loving kindness, this dynamic of kindness. It's one of those great virtues that, um, <clears throat> that I think doesn't get as much uh, attention. And then when we move across to the, to the New Testament, the most common uh, word used in the New Testament is agape. You probably haven't seen this uh, uh, written like that, uh, agape with an H on the end, but I always think that agape without an H sounds like a gape. And, and so I, I kind of, it's, it's three syllables there, agape. And uh, the noun rarely used in Greek literature, this, it's interesting that this um, is rarely used. When they go back over, you know, they've got several centuries of, of, uh, of pre-Christian Greek. And in classical Greek literature, the, 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 this noun's very rarely used. But it's interesting that when the Jewish translators came to translate the, the Old Testament into Greek, because now there were so many Greek-speaking Jews in the uh, in the in the in the world, uh, and they did this in uh, Alexandria in, in, in Egypt from 300 BC to a, a, in the middle of the first century before Christ, around you know about 100 uh, uh, BC. During that time, and when they came to the Song of Songs, they grabbed this word, this uncommon word, 
um, to, to, to kind of explain what was going on in the Song of Songs, which I find quite interesting, isn't it? And it's through that that it comes into the New Testament. You know, so it's come via the Song of Songs, and there's some of us here, the Song of Songs is not the most favourite book in the Bible. It's a little bit creepy, we feel, you know, anyway, having a neck like a tower, and we'll leave it there. Um, because it, uh, um, is Chris Magnuson here today? Because he could have <laughs> given, given us some photos, yes. Yes. Um, um, uh, but... Um, it carries a sense of affection, but it's not just... <laughs> sorry, Graham. Tickled your funny back. Uh, not just a sense of affection, but it's also this notion of goodwill. You know, goodwill. A, a, a really goodwill toward a person. Um, and, and benevolence. You know, this uh, active benevolence. Not just the intention of being kind to a person, but the active commitment to being kind to a person. So it's... Um, it's, these words are the words, and I, I've thought also we're going to pick up on the word um, phileo, which is this um, brotherly love, you know, which is another word that's used quite well in, in the New Testament, but not, not as commonly as agape. So those are just words that, that, that are commonly used in the, in the Bible for love. And the theme this morning is to look at how God expresses his love in Advent, in the coming of Christ. And this passage uh, came to my mind as I was um, thinking along that theme. It's from Galatians chapter 4 and it says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. The set time, this idea of God and timing, you know, that, that God is, it's a reflection of the fact that he has a, a plan and that everything is on schedule. So it doesn't look like it. You know, it looks like the world is out of control and that somebody else is running the calendar here. And certainly that's happening in political and, and sort of spiritual entities, aren't they? They're trying to take over the calendar. They're trying to take over the, the planning and the direction and the movement of, of history. And yet the scripture says quite clearly, no, no, this is God's, this is God's um, uh, dominion and he, he does things when this time is fully come. One of the dynamics of the miraculous is timing. You know? and, um, and it's not so much that the action itself is miraculous. It's when it happens, that it happens just at the right time. I was thinking about this, and to my mind I, uh, came these two illustrations of timing, of miraculous timing. Uh, some many years ago now, I, I was in, um, in a mission context, and I was in uh, an Islamic-majority uh, country, and in, in the particular city that was most Islamic in that, a traditional, very, very Islamic city, and in that particular country, there was no room for Christian faith or witness. And so those people that had got into that country as missionaries, they had done, done it through miraculous ways. And I, I was with a fellow, and we were talking to a, 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 just such a person who was living in that town. And... Um, and he was explaining how careful he has to be in sharing his faith and how he has to just wait upon the Lord to open, his, open the opportunity. And he was telling, me, telling us about the fact that he had met somebody on the train and they'd, they'd just fallen into conversation and the conversation had really turned to the things of God and it was a very wonderful conversation. And he just had to commit the man 
to, to God. And, we, and he's telling us the story as we're walking in the evening, late evening, it's about 8 to 9 o'clock, it was dark. You know, we're walking in the city, a big city, a lot of people. And, and, and he says, so he's telling us about, he's, he said, well, I just had to commit that man to God because I had, you know, I would never see him again. And the man walked right up to him. <laughs> I mean, he just said, he just stopped, you know, just stopped. <laughs> As he just told that story. And uh, <laughs> another thing that happened on that trip was um, I was a thousand kilometers from civilization and uh, got sick. And um, in the end, when I finally got back to civilization, I was hospitalized for a while. And while they were, they kept me in, which was an experience in itself for another time. But the, when they were satisfied that it wasn't cholera, <laughs> that I was nearly dying off as it so seemed they let me go in the end they didn't know what it was but it wasn't cholera so they were that they, that was what they were concerned about and um and i'd missed my flight uh, out of um that europe out of that i'd got back into europe i'd missed my flight and i had to go to paris and um just face the future and so i just committed myself to god and i was very frail at the time and i just got this into this plane and i arrived in paris and uh, I could hardly walk. And just out, as I got out of the plane, there was a, one of those push trolleys, you know? And I was able to just chuck my bag in it and lean on it and just make my, make my way into the arrival hall. And, um, and I just had no, I don't know what was going to happen, you know? Because um, I was a day late. As I walked into the arrival hall, there was a classical piece of music that had been taken over and uh, words to a hymn had been added to this classical piece. And this piece was playing as I walked in the door. And the words that it was playing, if you were to sing it as a hymn, the words would be, Thy word declares... Thou shalt supply my need. As I walked in the door. I walked over to the counter and I just explained my situation and, and the woman looked at me and she said, oh, come with me. Took me across the hall to her desk and she explained to the woman behind, she gave me a new ticket and she said, your flight's leaving in a few minutes, just take it and off you go. Nothing miraculous about the plane. Nothing miraculous about the sound system. Everything miraculous about that moment. Everything. Everything. Nothing miraculous about a conception. Nothing miraculous about a birth. Nothing miraculous about a stable. Nothing miraculous about stars in the sky. But they came that star at just the right moment. <laughs> and the child was born in the fullness of time. And that spirit of God's sovereignty over your life is what you have received. And the Lord wants to encourage you today to be at peace 
in the outworking of your life in the world because things will happen in his time and rest in that, rest in it. So when the time had fully come, God sent his son. I was struck with this, oh, the scripture is amazing. Here we're talking about eternity here. <laughs> and the father, when the time is right and the star is in its place, Let's go. What moved him to move the universe to a place and a time in which he could give his son to us, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who are under the law. This is the interesting thing. The law, it's given to the Jews, but it is true for all men and women, whether we are Jews or not. That we might receive adoption to sonship. And uh, this passage is fascinating because it has here, firstly, a reference to Roman law, adoption as sonship. You know, and that means in the Roman law, um, there was a formal situation where somebody, whether it was the born son or not the born son, would be recognized as the son and a son and heir of that particular person. And you can see this happen particularly in the uh, imperial system, but it happened in family life as well. And, and here, uh, this adoption of sonship was the formal recognition of that person as son. And the whole idea of that was that not... Did they, were they just legally one son? But the, this was a legal recognition of the fact that they were being appointed as one son because it was understood that they were of the same spirit. That's why the adoption took place. Because very often, biologically, the, the, the biological son wasn't of the same spirit, but that person seemed to get it. Seemed to get what the empire was about. Seemed to get what the family was about. Seemed to get what the business was about. And say they were adopted because they were of the same spirit. And that's what it says here. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. <laughs> we weren't of the same spirit, were we? We were about our own business and things like that. But God in his mercy sent the Spirit, sent his Son in order that we may be able to receive the Spirit of his Son and get the Father's purpose. Get the will of God as something that's implanted. And where is it implanted? It's implanted in the heart. And what is the heart? The heart is that part of us where the deep motivations that make us the people we are and make us do the things we do those deep things that make things in, in our culture today, people are wrestling with the business of identity. They're wrestling with it because they want to be recognized by an outer appearance. But actually, when you think about it, what they're wrestling about is that that outer appearance reflects a certain way of life, things they do, things they value. And here he's saying, I will send the spirit of my son who deeply understands the nature of the divine purpose. I'll send that into the very core of your being that will transform your identity. So it won't be so much about your tattoos or about your pink shirt. 
we just had had a little bit of a joke about that after. But anyway, but you know, it isn't about those things. It's about who we really are and what's really important to us and what really motivates us and makes us do the things we do. Don't we need our redemption in that area? That's where we need the Spirit to be, to rest in that area. Because I'm still troubled by some of the things I want to do. And now, he says, having dealt with the Roman thing, he says, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out in Aramaic, (laughs) Abba. And he adds the Aramaic version to the Greek version, Peter, for father. He adds it because he wants us to understand that this is not just a formal relationship with one's Peter. This is a deeply personal relationship. Deeply personal relationship. This is dad. This is the language of the first time the baby child says something like da. In in Middle East it would be bah. 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 And that word grows up with the child and becomes filled with reverential appreciation that the one who has all power over his life and being loves him more than his own soul. This is how he's expressing his love to us in Advent. He's sending the spirit of his son into us who knows how much the father loves. So we're no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to whatever it is that used to control us. But we're now God's children. And since we are his children, God has made us also his heirs. His heirs. And that's the whole spirit, actually, of the word sonship. The word sonship is not so much the biological relationship. It's the fact that we are, in fact, heirs of God, whatever our gender may be. And the thing about it is that the term there, the Greek word for adoption is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. But it, it means, it means that, the, that the adoption is not so much about the stuff that I inherit. It's the purpose that I inherit. It's the purpose. It's what defines me. That's what I inherit. In our materialistic society, we want to make it all about how much money we're going to get in the bank. But inheritance is so much more than that. So we experience God's love as a child is loved by their father. <laughs> That's how we experience it. You know, when we this is a question in today's society, so much of the kind of um, worship metaphor is kind of ballad-like, isn't it? It's kind of lover-type music. But actually, we experience the love of God as a child experiences the love of a father. And I understand in today's society there's so much um, kind of down on fatherhood, you know, because fathers seem to have been so so bad at the job that uh, we've, we've kind of left it alone. But this is how we experience... God's love at Advent as a father loves his children. This was reflected in the spirit of his son 
relating then as the son does to a father or as an heir does to a father. And now I just take this whole idea and I've said to us that the adoption of the son implies the right as an heir of the father, um, i.e. the authority, that what we're actually being given is the authority, the influence, the responsibility, the participation in the plan and purpose of the kingdom rather than the individual possession of a stake in the material of the kingdom, you know, that we own a farm or something. This great passage in the scripture talks about a father's love. It says, The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. He knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and die. The wind blows and we're gone as though we had never been there. But the love of the Father, the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him, who know who it is that loves them, the great creator, his salvation extends to the children's children, to those who are faithful to his covenant. There you get that chesed idea of those who obey his commandments. And, and we find struggle with words like obedience and commandments. But it all depends on who we are being obedient to and what the commandments are. Just a few things. Oh, I know we're running out of time, but... Part of the, our problem with the business of love is that our life in the world and our personality and our personality, they shape the understanding of, 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 of love to us. And, you know, we can talk about it like we do now, but it, it's actually deeply settled in us of what we think love is. And not so much what we think it is, but what we have kind of been shaped by. And I'm just thinking about the love, five love languages this week. You know, these, that, that book that was written about the five love languages. And can any of you remember any of them? Shout them out. Gifts. Acts of service. Physical touch. Words of affirmation. Quality time. You've got them all. Now, the thing about this book is it's, what it's doing is it's sort of saying this is how people want love, want to experience love. And it's different. So you get some people, for instance, that want, they get their affirmation, they get their value from being able to do acts of service. They feel good about themselves by doing acts of service. Other people feel good about themselves when they're given gifts. You know? <laughs> In other words, you see that actually this is not a, a, an intellectual understanding of love. This is actually a kind of a personality expression. It's a kind of expression of who we are. It's a, life, it's a way of perceiving the, ourselves. That's what it's really talking about. And these things do shape us and influence us. So for some people, they would feel like, for instance, that God really loves them by, if he gives them something or that God really loves them if he gives them a word of affirmation. And actually, you pick this up, don't you, in people's conversations. And I know conversations where you pick it up that some people, they feel like God really spoke to them and that's such an important thing. Uh, okay, you've got the, the drift. It's more than just um, a, a style of love. It's actually a style of... Of, um, of, of being. And we just need to keep that in mind that actually when you think about the love of the Father for us, it meets all of those criteria. <laughs> you know, meets them all. But we will respond to different elements of it. Another thing about the love of God is that it's a perfection. God loves us in a perfect way and none of our love is perfect. 
So can, we can regard it as an ideal. It's something to which we aspire, you know, that we would love. I would like to think that my children feel that I love them as God loves me. <laughs> Who am I kidding? You know, this is something we need to recognise in the scripture, that the difference between the perfections of God and the imperfections of the natural world that we live in that, that, that what God does is he stoops down. You know, that's the language actually of uh, Ahav, where God, to somebody low, it's like he stoops down, he comes onto our level, and he talks to us at our level. And he, the limits are with our brain. Sorry that I'm looking at you again, Ken. You know, but who else is that? Uh, you get my point? That the limitations of, our, of the grasp of the love of God is not with God. It's with us. But he stoops down constantly to make his love our experience. So when we reflect on the love of God, when we desire the love of God, and when we experience the Father's love, recognize that it's not so much an understanding thing. It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to know the Father's love in a very personal way. Uh, so the Father's love is for very imperfect people. And here's a passage from John, and this was where my, most of my work on this was built for the first letter of John. It's very much about the love of God. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things, these things to you so that you may not sin. And that word sin always sort of seems to be a problem to us. But what I'd encourage you to see is that what he's talking about here is he's talking about... Um, Something more than just the occasional sin like, you know, having a smoke behind the shed type thing. You know, he's talking about the whole spirit of self-interest that is so deeply ingrained in our natural self. And it's in everything much deeper than we realise. We're unconsciously self-interested. And the thing about being unconsciously self-interested is it's always at somebody else's expense. See? Always. And so when he says, I'm writing to you that you may not be so deeply selfish. That's what he's saying. But if anyone recognises that they are deeply selfish, thank God that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, the selfless one. Righteousness, the selfless one. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's the one who turns aside the anger of God. We don't like the idea of an angry God, but why is God angry? He's angry because selfish people abuse other people. It's no wonder. We get angry too, don't we? That's why he's anger. Now, this is the amazing thing here. We have an advocate... It was not just that the advocacy occurred upon the cross, but we now have someone who is actually there representing us, little selfish creatures with small minds and small motivations. You know, there Jesus sits at the Father's right hand and he says, Father the blood. Father the blood. Turning aside, continuing to turn aside, the wrath of God, the anger of God, justifiable anger of God at us. And not only for us, 
but for the whole world. <gasps> what a sacrifice. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not him, and not in him. But if whoever keeps his word is in him truly the love of God is perfected. What it means by perfected, perfected is that the love of God is continually being developed, being brought to maturity. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in God ought to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. Oh. This passage just gets expanded again in the next chapter. Oh, where am I? Yes, look at... Uh, ah, yes, yes, yes. Beloved, I'm not writing you a new commandment because listening to the commandments, he says, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This business about love and hatred, they're not emotions basically in the Hebrew language you know, and the Hebrew mindset. They're not firstly emotions, they are motivations and actions. Motivated actions, that's what they are, not emotions. So the thing is, here it's saying here, this is what it's saying. I call it the new command for the, the, the house rule. We're familiar with the idea. Sorry, I'm running out of time. I'm trying to wrap this up. We're familiar with the idea of the old um, ascetic tradition, the monastics, you know? And like, for instance, the Benedictine order and the Franciscans and people like that, right? We're familiar with that idea. And these, these, ben, these arose, these, um, th th they arose because the church had lost its simple purity, Right, and so uh, become materialistic, and uh, and so they, they 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 withdrew from that, and they 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 they, they started these or religious orders, and they had what they called the house rule or the canon. They said, if you're going to join this group, you will live by this rule, by this canon. And you know the famous ones: is poverty, chastity. Obedience, humility. Some of them were a little different. Benedictine, learning, things like that. You see, there was this rule. When it says the commandment, when Jesus says the new commandment, this is what he's talking about. He's saying this is the house rule for us as a community of faith. Okay. It is that you will love your brother. house rule of the father's family and this is his commandment and this is this expansion the expansion of loving the brother says this and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another when it says we believe in the name that means that we draw our identity and our understanding of truth from who Jesus is okay that's where we're drawing this understanding of love from and then it says, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. Just move through because of time's sake. So here we approach communion today with this problem of the persistent self-interest, which remains strong 
and a negative influence upon all our relationships. We're constantly feeling, aren't we, a little hard done by in human relationships, you know, that kind of thing. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, doesn't want to know him, his character. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now this is the thing. When we think about the love of God for us, we see it expressed in the sacrifice of the Father and the Son in, in, the, in the cross, in the incarnation ultimately in the cross. When we ask the question, and how do I love God? In this passage we understand that we love God not by our regular devotion to religious life, but by our love one for another. Loving what God loves. Loving who God loves. These imperfect people who received redemption. This is, this is the, how we are outworking our love for God. This is how he wants us to, to do it. So when it says... Thus, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. It's not talking about some kind of exercise of trying to make your psychological and emotional life better. It's talking about human relationships. I, <laughs> that in my relationship to other people, the motive, the intent, is, is where I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work. So as we come to communion this morning, I want us to see that if the quest is not just about what is love, and so far as God toward me is concerned, but let the question also apply to what is love, me toward God. My response to the cross. You know, my response to the cross. Let us, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, and it says members of his body in this, let's allow the Holy Spirit to renew our relationships. Firstly in our families, because this has all been about the Father's household, the family, and then in the body of Christ, which is his household, and then we understand that the mission to the world is just the outflow of that. You know. Let's, musicians, would you like to come and let's crack it open. And What I'm going to ask you to do this morning is just think about as you pray, and we're going to pray now about our families and our friends and the body of Christ that we're a part of. And I'm going to ask you, as you hold this symbol in your hand, I'm going to ask you to think about loving people and considering what is best for them, how to treat them 
benevolently, kindly, how to be forgiving with their humanity and their weaknesses and their struggle with their own self-interest. How we do this as our sacrifice of love to Christ, how we love the Lord by not putting ourselves first, but by putting him and our brothers and sisters before ourselves. And I just encourage you, you may want to sort of, as you eat this, if there's somebody that comes to your heart and mind today where you think, oh, Lord, help me to love them as they need to be loved, I'd ask you just to stand up as you prepare to take this and say, make it personal. Make it personal about, about a specific person that you're asking the Holy Spirit to help you to love with the Father's love. Just give you a moment if that's happening for you. Take it out of the generalities. Bring it into something personal, a face, a heart, someone that needs you to be one of the Father's children. This person's probably not lovable. At least not all of the time. Think of our families, Lord, today as we eat this bread that symbolizes the way in which you brought us into your very family brought us into yourself Lord Jesus that we might share the spirit of your spirit in relation to our father that we may be able to say that he is my father too thank you Jesus we pray that you'll help us with our human relationships especially those in our families and in the body of Christ in Jesus name Amen of juice reminds us that it's not just a good idea but it's something that was actually transacted for us in the death of Christ it's how important it is in Jesus name let's drink thank you So mm-hmm.